<sighs> Life's hard. Let's talk about it over some tea. Welcome to Tea and Transitions, where we serve up stories on the dynamic lives of women of color as they navigate through life's cold, lukewarm, and steamy moments. I'm Vina Vo, a planner, facilitator, and today your personal tea snob. And I'm Odelia, a writer and educator trying to not spill too much tea. So grab your favorite cup or mug and let's get right into some TNT. V and I am really glad that we're meeting today to talk about today's topic, uh, race. I know when we started thinking about our podcasts and episodes that we'd want to do, race naturally came up, especially when we're talking about stories of women of color. Race impacts us every day. And in the past week, we've seen terrible acts of violence happen. And one that I know that we both wanted to address today is the mass shooting in Atlanta that impacted the lives of many Asian American women and just the discourse around it or lack of discourse around it. And what does it mean to be someone who is non-white in the U.S. in 2021 and how some things are the same and some things are different? And I know thinking about just my own past, I distinctly remember the first time I knew that I was different from the other people around me growing up in an all-white uh, neighborhood in rural Indiana. And I was on a school bus and you know, I just sat down in my seat and this young boy who was like about a, a year older than me walks by and tells me to move. And I was like, well, I'm not moving, I'm sitting here. And he you know, gets really angry and he sits down behind me and turns to his friend and says, like, when did all the African monkeys start being led inside our school? And I didn't even know what to do in that moment. So I stayed silent and I ran off the school bus when they got to my stop and ran inside my house and told my mom what he'd said. And, you know, I didn't really know all the implications, but I knew it was something bad. And I knew he was saying it because there was something about me that was really different from him, you know, and I'm like six, seven years old at the time. And just like sitting down with my mom and, you know, her talking about like, sometimes people aren't going to like you because of how you look. And that just blowing my mind of, you know, like, wait, what? And just, you know, year after year, this is something like race is always on my mind. But I think that it really changed for me when I started teaching. And I started teaching around the same time that Trayvon Martin was murdered in Florida. And I was teaching in Florida. And it was the first time that I had to explain to someone else what this was, you know, go to school and stand in front of my kids and say that, yeah, work hard and the world will be fair to you. Or like do well in school and you'll have all these chances. Like none of that is is really true, you know, and it's really important to have these real conversations about you could work really hard, you could be minding your own business, you could be like eating Skittles, and someone can decide to end your life. And like, how do you have those conversations with people um, and still make them feel like, you know, moving ahead and, and doing things is, is still important. So, you know, Trayvon Martin and talking to other people about it really changed me. And when Michael Brown was murdered in 2014, the same summer that, you know, Eric Garner was choked to death, 
um, just seeing those images and Michael Brown's body in the street, like that to me, I explained to people was, you know, the moment in which like put me on a different track that I was like, this is an important part of my life, but this is now needing to be like a central part of my life and what I do, what my art is about, what my work is centered around, because like, this is the moment. And I know that was like, Ferguson was definitely a defining moment for many people. And I'm seeing that happen to people a lot in 2020 and 2021, that these like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor defining moments for them. And yeah, I would just love to hear like, what do you think is, was your like defining moment of I'm on a different track when it comes to like how I think about race in my life? You know, I think the interesting thing about growing up in a very homogenous community, I grew up in a very Vietnamese community. It's called Little Saigon. So all the Vietnamese, a lot of the Vietnamese refugees, um, you know, just we organized there and we built out this community. So my some of my family members still can't speak English today, even after being in the U.S. for 30 years, because you didn't have to. This community, everything was written in Vietnamese. Everyone spoke Vietnamese. And so... I think I really noticed race and me being different when I went to college and suddenly I was thrown into this environment where there were all these stereotypes that were placed on, um, on Asian people that I didn't really know of. Like, you know, I, I knew of like, oh yeah, we're good at math and people assume that we can do karate and we're related to Jackie Chan. But anyways, I think that's when I first noticed race and the implications of uh, the expectations that people put on you and how how that affects you. Um, I think for me, what really set me on a different trajectory was, I think it was the summer of 2016. And it almost felt like every single day, a Black person was being murdered by the police. Like first it was Alton Sterling and then it was Philando Castile. And then before then, you know, there was Michael Brown, Eric Gartner, and then Trayvon Martin. It was like, it was like every year there was like a new black person just being killed by, um, by the police or vigilantes or like whoever, you know, these racist people who thought they could get away with it. And like time and again, they just kept getting acquitted. And I think that for me in 2016 was when I would realize how the systemic inequities that were in place. Like I think before then I still very much held on to the American dream and um, hope that that was something that, you know, I could have aspired to. That was what my family believed in. I mean, that's the reason why we left our, our home to come to the U S to achieve that. So like we heavily like believed in it so hard because like, why else would you like leave everything behind? Right. Um, but 2016 was, I was like, wow, justice is not there. And I, you know, I, I still feel a lot of shame around how long it took me to wake up to that and realize that, but I'm just, I, I've, since I've been on that learning journey, I actually feel so liberated. Like once I believed that things were not fair in this country and that the American dream was nothing but an amazing marketing scheme, um, it really liberated me to thinking about like realizing that, you know, it's, it is not my fault. It is not other people's fault that we can't um, just thrive or even survive in this country. It's the system that's the problem. It made me realize how important it is that we need to stand in solidarity with one another to support one another in um, fighting these injustices, fighting white supremacy. And I think it was 2016, um, you and I were working at the same company. We were working at education. We might have just met then. And I reached yes, out- Yes, the year we met, 2016. <laughs> yeah, and I reached out to you because I remember thinking, we work in public education. How come we're not talking about this? 
Um, and at that point, honestly, I don't think I had that many people to talk to about this. And I had read your bio because, you know, I was like, who's this girl who got hired right after me? I'm curious about her. <laughs> and I saw your background. I was like, oh, maybe I can reach out to her and ask. And I feel like now I see like, oh, my God, I was so naive to be like, hey, really bad things are happening right now. Do you want to talk with me and, you know, like figure out what we can do at our company? Like, I don't think I would approach it that way now without having a relationship with you first. But I think I was very young and naive then. Um, and I'm really grateful that you were receptive. I think you were hesitant at first, but um I was only hesitant because I was like, oh, I knew you was the person who like organized a lot of things at work. And I was like, she has too much energy. And I just I can't handle that. But sometimes friendships are forged in fire like that. And I actually was sitting here like feeling really emotional, like thinking back on 2016, because I, you know, you're having those thoughts. And I was, you know, in California thinking, I guess I won't talk about it with anyone. I guess I'll go to work and just like hear crickets. And so, you know, remembering you reaching out and saying like, we need to do something about it. What can we do? It, it felt like such a relief that like I, that someone cared, you know, that someone was also feeling these things and was willing to reach out and say like, you don't have to like silently move through work, even though these things are, are going on. And I don't think it's surprising that a lot of people come to these realizations later in life because they want, like, they, you know, like, mm -hmm. big capital T, they want us to think of these things as separate things, like, this event happened and this event happened. Both terrible, but not mm -hmm. connected. Don't think of them that way. But, like, we have to think about them as part of this whole. And, you know, first and foremost, when lives are lost, like, that is a personal loss to the people mm -hmm. who love them, to the people who cared about them, to their dreams. And that's the first thing I definitely was thinking about, like after the mass um, killing in Atlanta. But then also I'm thinking about like, this is just part of the same thing that is killing us, that is allowing us to feel like the compounded nature of the pandemic that so many people of color are the ones dying in the pandemic at the hands of the state doing so much mm -hmm. of nothing. And here we are dying at the hands of like an environment that allows like, you know, hate speech and racially motivated crimes to just happen and then blame, you know, like, oh, you know, he just had a problem. And like, we, we have to see that like the, the problem it's coming all down from is white supremacy and it's just impacting all of us. And when we think about these as separate incidents, it really, it's just like, we're planning a March in January. We're planning a March in June instead of like, what's the thing that we have to always be doing that isn't just the March so that we're dismantling all of this and how do we have genuine relationships with each other? Cause I think some of the first times people are like, Oh, you know, you all are people of color, like, um, you know, talk amongst yourselves. And it's like, well, I don't even know them. Like, how do you have genuine relationships that isn't just forged in, you know, fire? Like we might've come together over that in 2016, but we're like genuinely like good friends now who like come together during happy moments and share laughter and share our lives together. And I think that's what we need to be looking at. Like, how do we put our mm -hmm. lives together more? So it doesn't feel like we're just bonding over yeah, tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've been really, I've been really struggling these past two weeks, as you know, um, it's just, it's been real, it's been so it's hard. Been hard. And like, I think for me, when, when I first heard the news, it was actually the day after my birthday, actually, that, um, I heard the news and I was just thinking to myself, like, I, I, I kind of didn't even want to 
think about it. I just wanted to ignore it. And like, if I ignore it enough, then maybe it didn't happen. But I was really grateful to some of my, you know, women of color friends and you included who reached out and were like, hey, are you okay? And that helped me like kind of process and think about it. And I, and then because of that, because of people who reached out and helped me process it, I was able to reach out to others and help them process it too. But I think a lot of it is like everyone's feeling like we're sort of in shock. It's like a weird shock, right? It's like we're shocked, but we're not surprised because this keeps happening over and over and over again. And I, yeah, it's just been really challenging to to figure out like how do we move forward from this and how do we like heal? But I listened to a conversation that Grace Lee Boggs had with Angela Davis today. Oh, oh two of my favorite. <laughs> Remember when we saw her? Oh, we were so. Oh, yes. And you took the photo for me. I was like, oh, yes, you were like right in the front. Um, anyways, yeah, they, um, so Grace Lee Boggs was saying how, you know, when these times, like these, I'll paraphrase because I'm not going to get it fully correct. And she's just so amazing. Um, she meant the, the whole idea was that once these crises happen or these tragedies happen, like there's a real danger, obviously, you know, our lives, our livelihood, the destruction of institutions and all of that. But there's also an opportunity for us to be creative and think about this world that we want to be in, to imagine, to think. And this is something that you and I always talk about, you know, in the work that we do in helping people really envision what the future looks like. Um, and I think a lot of that really stems from black feminism and women color feminism is about like envisioning this world that we don't we don't know yet we haven't seen yet because the world that we have now and like trying to play by its rules really it's just never going to work out for us like we really have to be creative and think beyond the existing systems so just just hearing her speak even though this was like so many years ago it felt really resonant for today because i think this moment and seeing how you know, I'm just hoping in that in this moment, we're having more conversations about how, um, you know, the Asian community struggles and the Black community struggles and other communities of color struggles are really all the same and all really stem from the system of white supremacy. I think sometimes it becomes this like, you know, this oppression Olympics between our communities. And that's just not like how it should be. And I think you had tweeted, retweeted someone saying like, there's enough justice for all of us to have and also there is it <laughs> there's also enough injustice that will be given to us as well so yeah just kind of thinking about that and I really hope that we can turn this moment into a time where we are put for we are brought together because of this fire because of this crisis but also a time for us to build those genuine relationships and be in community with each other as well yeah, and to finally, you know, really dig deep into the history um, of mm -hmm. us coming together as two communities, because this isn't, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of that happening now, but it's happened before. And if you don't know that history, I remember last year, no, two years ago, I read The Making of Asian America, and I just did not know the history of organizing in, like, Central and, like, South America in the Asian America, like, community. And also because we forget, like, we always refer to the U.S. as America, but it's like America is a large place. Like, this is the U.S. and there are other parts of the Americas. And just learning about movements in Mexico, movements in um, different countries in South America, 
um, in the Asian community, I was like, wow, like I, no one told me about this. This is incredible. Like this is happening at the same time and alongside lots of the black liberation movement uh, and seeing different groups, you know, on both sides come together and, and talk about it and work together. Like mm-hmm. we just need to hear more of that. Like we just don't know enough of like our own history, you know, cause either, you know, the U.S. is fighting in a war to free us or they enslaved us and we started as slaves. Mm-hmm. You know, like these history books really do no justice to our children learning about how powerful we are as people and the things that we've done over the years to continue to survive and to thrive and to build together. And that's what I want, you know, young you know, people to to walk away with. Like we're building every year on work that our ancestors have been doing. Like this is not the first year of doing something yeah, together. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's like, you know, I it just seems like they're purposely trying to <laughs> to <laughs> to hide that we work together or fought together or purposely try to divide us, you know, and it, I mean the tactics feel pretty it's pretty well documented. So we just got to rise above it. And, you know, I think I, I just, I just, I can't wait for the day that we can all just sit around sipping on Hennessy, eating amazing food <laughs> and just like not having to, you know, fight for something like fight against white supremacy, essentially be, I don't know if that day will ever come in our lifetime, but um, it'd be awesome to just have like, a day of joy and rest with our communities together. Yeah. Tell your uncles I've been practicing. <laughs> I think I could, I think I could go drink for drink now with them, but uh, we won't know till we try um, it For our listeners, <laughs> um, at my wedding, Odelia tried to go one for one with my Vietnamese uncles on like Hennessy and she disappeared for a while, but then she came back. She came back at night. <laughs> Yeah, I just need to take a quick nap, quick nap in the corner. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to have a little nap and then go back to working with people. But, you know, it's just like, that's what I'm talking about. These like genuine moments of community. And, um, you know, I thought instead of our game today, we could both share like our very first moment that we had this kind of just like genuine moment of like connection with um, another like uh, group from like another race, uh, another person of color. For me, I'll go first was, I mean, I grew up around, you know, white people in my family. So I didn't really have that moment until college. And I had it the summer before college uh, when I went to do a program at Cambridge in the UK. And I became really good friends with these two uh, Saudi Arabian um, like young men and they would laugh all the time about just like being profiled in the, in the U.S. and they found like you know a way to like take that pain and and move it into laughter and we bonded over like I would you know make jokes about things that happened to me as a black woman too and you know in that laughter and that like kind of like shared um, you know pressure that happens to us we were able to get really close and I was like oh wow it's so nice to meet people who you know are also able to Uh, move forward and and navigate the world like this. And then when I was in college, I did a program um, where you like join early and you um, basically clean the dorms and you get some money uh, because, you know, it's like, ah, I need some money in college. And so I knew if I did that program, I'd also be around people who are also like me, who were willing to, you know, come early and, and have a job 
you know, for lack of a better term. And they housed us by last names. And so since my last name is Young, I actually ended up rooming um, with, you know, people with last name like you and Yang. And I was just like, wow, I, I didn't really have a relationship with um, any Asian American people in my life. And everyone was really nice. And then it came time to go to a meeting for the Chinese Students Association. I was like, oh, I want to come because I made a promise to myself. That, like, I didn't know people who were different to me, um, except being the different person growing up, and that I would genuinely reach out to other groups. And so I went to the meeting. They were like, oh, we're going to have elections for freshman representatives. And I was like, can I run? And they were like, instead of being like, oh, no, that's so strange. Who are you? Why are you at this meeting? They're like, yeah, that would be so great if you wanted to you know, run. So I ran and then like won one of five spots to be a freshman representative for the Chinese Students Association and was like involved all throughout college. And, you know, there's still some really close friends of mine and I, I visit them and a lot of them have kids now. And that was just, you know, seeing that I could be really welcome and not like, oh, welcome is a strange girl who's like, you know, wants to be part of this club. And I was like, no, this is Ogelia. She is like a black woman and she wants to be in community with us and learn and be together and um, and just coming together and, and having that care. If I was sick, people would bring me soup, you know, we'd go to parties together, just like that friendship, but wanting to learn about each other. And that's translated into post-college and learning about you know, are more about our lives and the things that are impacting us. And, you know, they are always reaching out when things happen um, in the Black community or, or things are just happening in my own life. And I make a point to reach out as well. And just developing that has really defined a lot of uh, my life and just having that relationship and a big reason that I wanted to make sure that I was still involved in like Black and Asian solidarity when I moved out to the Bay and being part of that history that's always been going on in the Bay as well. Very cool. Um, I think my first, the first moments that I really remember um, connecting with another person of color outside my race was probably when I was in the first grade. So like I mentioned, I grew up in, you know, very Vietnamese dominant community. It was like 75% Vietnamese and I think 25, maybe 20% Hispanic and then, you know, 5% everybody else. Um, but in the first grade, I moved to live with my mom in a different community, and this community was primarily um, like Latino immigrants. And it was, yeah, it was the first time that I had like lived next to someone that wasn't Vietnamese, not let alone Asian, okay, like Vietnamese. And they were the they were they were so nice. Like I, they would welcome me into their home, and I remember they would make me these. Um, like I had quesadillas for the first time, so they would make me like quesadillas, and then. Um, they would teach me like, uh, how to make, like, you can, I learned this trick where you would like cut, just cut like mozzarella cheese up and then like sprinkle sugar on it. Um, and it was like a lot of freedom that I had for a first grader, like first graders are what, like seven years old. I had a lot of freedom in that neighborhood. Like I was able to go outside. I played with my friends. I like went to people's houses, um, which that was actually the most freedom I had probably, until I became like a teenager, because when I moved back to my old neighborhood, I never went outside. Kids were never playing outside. Um, I didn't really have friends in the neighborhood, but what was really cool about that neighborhood was just like everyone was so, um, it was such a community and we always connected and like hung out. And my little brother at that time was only like, I don't know, two or three. And even he got to wander around, you know, cause everyone was always outside and everyone was like looking out for one another. And so yeah, I just, I really, I, this question made me really think about that moment, how special that was. 
to get that one year of living in that that, in that community. Um, but specifically, I remember I had a I had a um, friend. Her name was Jessica, and she was a twin, I think. But her twin was in a different class. And um, Jessica and I, just I considered Jessica to be my, my best friend. But then she, we had to do like a project about our best friends. And so she did a project about someone named Rosie. And I was like, and I felt really crushed because Rosie was her best friend and not me. So then I didn't, yes. Oh no, so- yeah. You gotta, you gotta double check that. Children, children are no. not loyal. Children so, are not loyal. I was really sad about it. So I was like, well, I'm not gonna say she's my best friend. I'm gonna say Rosie's my best friend too. So I also wrote about Rosie. And then the teacher, um, I think Miss Silva was like, wow, Rosie, you're really popular. And I was so heartbroken. Um, but yeah, I just, I love, oh man, like, I really miss living in that community. I remember, you know, we always had the man that sold corn. He had like this little horn that he would honk and then all the kids would run out and we would get um, corn or snow cones or, um, or chicharrones or, okay, this is a snack that uh, I think I mentioned in our food episode. This is where I learned the trick. You get um, sour cream and cheddar ruffles and you put tapatio in there and then you crush it up. And sometimes if you're feeling, you know, a little, a little more like acidic, you can add some like lime juice in there. Um, but yeah, that was probably the first moment that I had really connecting with not just a person, I guess, but like a really a whole community out there. And yeah, I, I really missed that time. And I would love to move to a community where kids could just be outside and playing and hanging out with each other. And like people would look out for one another. Yeah, I'm jealous. I never had that moment in childhood where it was like, let me just roam around because it was dangerous, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, we've talked before about my poem about learning to ride a bicycle later in life because just like roaming about on your bicycle wasn't safe. But that's what I want. I just want communities where children of color mm-hmm. can roam around and be themselves and be safe and laugh and be joyful like that. That is my vision for the future, like a world in which children of color feel safe, mm-hmm. feel loved, and just they can play. Just let them play. Let them be kids, you know? Uh, don't have them practice active shooter yeah. drills. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, none of that. But uh, so I have been sitting here sipping on this tea, uh, trying to think of my notes because I was like, okay, Athena's <laughs> going to ask me my notes on this tea soon. Um, it's, you know, definitely has more of like, you know, a roasted, um, you know, scent to it than some of the others that we've tried, but I'm ready to know. Like, tell me about this. Yes. Tea. I'm so excited to talk to you about this tea. Um, so I chose this tea. So this is a red tea from Vietnam, specifically from the Hazang region. It's in the mountains in the north. Um, and these are made from ancient tea trees. So what makes that unique is tea usually grows in like bushes, but these are like trees. Um, and so the couple that made the tea, they're actually trying to get this, um, this tea varietal to be recognized as an like, official tea varietal. So very, very exciting. But I, I chose this tea because it's a tea from Vietnam and not a lot of people know about tea from Vietnam. We usually know Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan. Um, We know it from India, but we never really know from Vietnam. What's crazy is Vietnam actually exports tons of teas um, because, you know, Vietnam is such fertile ground, which is why the U.S. tried to, you know, get in on there. Um, It's very fertile. Um, And so they actually export a lot of their tea that then gets roasted in, in like China and Taiwan and then gets exported. 
as you know a, tai, a Taiwanese or Chinese tea. But anyway, so when I went to Vietnam um, on my like little journey, I really wanted to find good Vietnamese tea. And nothing had told me that there was good Vietnamese tea. I just knew there was. And I was like, there must be amazing Vietnamese tea here. I just need to find it. So I came out there um, and randomly found someone who was willing to take me to like a tea region and take me around and help me like figure out, you know, to just taste some tea and understand it better. And it was just by a, you know, a chance that um, this one person like answered my call and was like, yeah, I'll set you up with some of my students who are trying to learn English and they'll like take you to the tea farms. So I met them at a grocery store. They picked me up on motorbikes and we went into like tea villages to like um, to taste the tea. And I mean, it was beautiful. The people were so lovely and kind, um, but the tea was just a little difficult for me to drink. Um, not because it was bad, but because Vietnamese tea and coffee in general tend to focus on like very heavy, robust flavors. And I learned that the reason why, and this is what some folks have told me, is like during war times, like we weren't going to drink light tea. Like tea and coffee was so precious. You were not going to like, you know, you're not going to let it steep for like 20, um, like a minute or two and then toss out the leaves, right? Like you wanted to get the most out of it. You wanted to like suck out all the caffeine, all the juices. You want to get that intense flavor. And so there's a more of a tradition in Vietnam to drink like the more like bitter, harder teas and same with our coffee as well. This is what I was told by the folks that I asked. Where does that come from? Like this, um, like want to have like more, like a, a bitter flavor. And I'm asking because when you said that, like I thought about in um, some West Indian countries, we have like a bitter mug and you like put water in it and it makes it more bitter and it's seen to be like good for your health. Like, is there a health, you know, story behind this? I'm not sure about the health necessarily, but I think, you know, like I said, like it really comes from wartime um, when it's like there was so much scarcity. So if you're going to, if you're going to get a cup of tea, you're going to want the biggest like bang for your buck, right? You're going to want the most caffeine. So it keeps you up, keeps you energized and you want to taste it. And um, that bitterness, I think that bitter tea, you can actually taste it. Whereas some more delicate tea, you have to be really mindful and you have to really like really sit there and like sip it and enjoy it and like, you know, breathe it in and all of that. But like, but Vietnam is a country that has been like rifled with war, like over and over and over again. Um, and so I think it's like kind of comes from that, maybe I'm guessing comes from that tradition of like, we don't have, you know, we can't like, we want the, the most, like the most potent of teas. Um, so when I was in this town, this town was called um, Tai Nguyen, which is a very well-known region for tea. I went there and I tasted and I was like, I was really disappointed. So I went back to Hanoi and was like, okay, back to the ground, back, back here, let's figure out, like, I'm going to look to see if like artisan tea shops around where I can go find, um, you know, artisan tea made by artisans. And so I found this one tea shop, um, kind of really, it was like really hard to find. It was a little bit outside Hanoi a bit off the beaten path, but it had like really amazing reviews. People, I talked about it. I went on their website. I contacted them on WhatsApp to like talk to them. And they're like, yeah, just come by. We do like these um, tastings with our tea master. He had won like um, a, he had won a few awards. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go, you know, stop by. And so I like ran in. I man, I managed to find myself at the store. And but right when I opened the door, it was like magic. It was just this like perfume, 
of um, tea that came like came at me. It was just it was wonderful. Like and after even after I left, my clothes still smelled so wonderful. It was an amazing place. Um, and I just like spent a ton of time talking with a couple who owned it. It's just like a wife and husband team who own the tea shop and they, they have their own like little plot of land where they grow their tea and then they roast it themselves. And yeah, I, I was in, I was in love. So their tea was so freaking excellent. And, um, okay. I, I realized I've been rambling on, sorry, <laughs> let's go back. No, I love, love, love love your tea stories. And I felt like I was in the shop with you. And I was about to ask, like, now that you, you know, have been spending a lot more time thinking about tea, making your own blends. Do you feel like when you encounter a tea that you like from the first smell or the first conversation with the person who made it, like feel like you make a connection with the tea? Um, I don't know necessarily if I would say I make a connection with the tea. I think definitely when you talk to like tea makers, you definitely feel that connection because like there's just something in their eyes. Like there's a passion for it. Like tea, the tea business is not necessarily lucrative. You know, it's a really, it's a, it's a really, um, it's just a labor of love. And there are no tea billionaires. I mean, you have those like, you know, David's tea and like, well, David's, yeah, I don't know how well they're doing. And you have like Tivana that got sold to Starbucks. Like you have those teas, but I, I personally don't drink those teas. Like I, the teas I go to are like all small mom and pop shops that I like. But yeah, I think like just like talking with, um, whenever I go to other countries and visit tea farms and talk to the tea makers, like, yeah, I definitely get that connection to them and just hearing their stories, hearing their lives and see how they're connected to it. Um, but now I realize why I started going on this rant. I was talking about why I chose this tea. I chose this tea mainly because I wanted to find, you know, be proud of my Vietnamese heritage. And that wasn't something I was always proud of. I think, you know, I tried really hard to be American. I wanted to be American. Um, I wanted to look like Britney Spears, <laughs> you know, like those kind of weird things that, you know, you grew up as a kid wanting to be and look like looking like Disney princesses and dumb shit like that. But anyways, um, and so I think this, this quest for me to find this Vietnamese tea that I loved was almost like part of my quest to like love being Vietnamese. And I don't think, I mean, I love being Vietnamese, obviously, but it's it was a sense of like pride that I could have um, in with my country and my culture. I mean, there's a lot of things to be prideful of and like proud of, but tea, obviously, because it's something that I love so much and have been studying, I wanted to know more about um, Vietnamese tea. So the I learned a ton about the tradition and the history of Vietnamese tea from the from the tea maker, and yeah. But anyways, I'll go back to talking about the tea now. Yeah, and isn't like loving tea and being focused on it so much better than being willing to give your voice up for a man like I know, did, you know Ariel. <laughs> and we still we still show that movie. Like, come on, she didn't even know him. He was just cute. Oh, I show it now for, you know, good conversations on, you know, mm. consent and, you know, d- development as like a young woman. It's going to be good lessons. Yeah, it's like a cautionary women. tale, I think. Oh, that would be fun. We should do Disney princesses as cautionary tales. That would be fun. Yeah, so, so, many, so many tales. So many, so many um, tales. But this tea, again, sorry, <laughs> is... It is a uh, red tea from the Hazan region and it's 
like you said, very roasted. It's like this, it kind of, um, for folks who aren't familiar with red tea, it probably would smell the most and taste the most like a nice roasted oolong. Um, the color is just so gorgeous. It's like this beautiful, beautiful amber hue. It kind of looks like rooibos when you um, cook it up for people who are familiar with rooibos. The taste, I would say, is kind of like honeysuckle, roasted cantaloupe. Um, it's just very... It's just very subtle and sweet, but very, um, like the middle note is where you really feel it. So like when you first taste it, it's like very light and sweet. The middle, like the kind of the climax of the taste is where it like, it just really hits your tongue and like really coats it. And then it fades off like really gentle. So if, if you were to imagine like a parabola, that's how I would describe the taste of this tea. And I could drink this tea seriously all day, like with the same leaves, like just keep pouring hot water and you would keep tasting um tasting it and so if anyone's interested in this tea shop it's called um Hing min tea it's spelled h-i-e-n space m-i-n-h and the name um is actually the owner's son and the owner's son and i have the same birthday so like my birthday buddy uh so it was just so serendipitous they're like a lovely couple and we're we're still in touch now so um you know would love, you know, to support their shop. It's it's a little bit expensive to get the shipping because it's from Vietnam, but the tea is just excellent. So I'm excited to go back and refill. I'm gonna like probably try to bring back a, a lot next time because it went by really, really quick. Yes. And I will come with because you'll need someone to carry the heavy bags <laughs> and I can help. No, 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 no. You come and you enjoy. You will be my guest. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. That should be good. All right. I feel like I've been talking about tea so much. Apologies. This is not just a tea podcast. Um, I think we should go ahead and just really get into our first story. And, you know, I, I, I think what's so interesting is like when we had set out the call for these podcasts, um, this was in last summer, I think around last summer. And um, the pieces that are submitted here are, have, are reflecting on that summer. And so a lot of things have not changed, unfortunately. But I think what is feels very what feels very present and very resonant for me today is thinking about friendships and the people that show up for you during um, these really tough times. And you and I have both talked about, you know, being there for each other and other people showing up for us. So I'm excited to hear our next piece. Yes. Um, so Brittany Enan is a storyteller and self-care consultant committed to supporting the well-being of BIPOC communities with a focus on Black women and other women of color. Relationship building and loving accountability is at the center of the anti-oppression practice she embodies in the world. An offering. Doing friendship with reasonable white women in 2020 and beyond. June 2020 reminded me that as a Black woman, I need to deeply examine and reimagine my friendships with white women. As the George Floyd uprisings were going on, I viscerally learned that my white woman friends were the last people I wanted to talk to, given the pain, grief, and anger of living through this latest iteration of anti-Black violence and systemic white supremacy. I saw white people as the enemy, and my white woman friends were no exception. I wanted to burn all the bridges with them, but my higher self, fueled by years of therapy, my ancestors, and Black Jesus, intervened. Brittany, 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 
I don't think the relationships you have built with them are meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Let's check in about what works and doesn't work in your friendships with these specific white women to check if they're actually cancel worthy, worthy, worthy. Ah, my higher self always pushing me to do the hard shit I really don't want to do, knowing my future self will appreciate it. Here's a summary of my discernment process about my white women friends, Nora, Lisa, and Elle. Reflection number one, what are my relational needs right now? Do I need to set some boundaries to give myself space to process? Can I take the risk to name my emotional needs in my current friendships with white women? With my white friend, Nora, I was direct with my needs and just asked to take a break from our weekly check-ins and that I would reach back out when I was ready. Prepared for the emergence of her white fragility and the effective end of our friendship, Nora turned out to be gracious and understanding with my ask. It was so necessary because I got the space I needed to check in with my black woman friends, to vent, grieve, and feel supported and seen. After six weeks, I was able to reach back out to her and resume our friendship on a strengthened platform of trust. Reflection number two. Are we accounting for the ways that white supremacy impacts our relationship? Why do I need to ask them to show up for me better and create new equitable norms? When I checked in with my friend Elle, I discovered a critical observation about our relational patterns. I chose not to excommunicate her during this terrible time because over the course of our two-year friendship, she actively and consistently notices and mitigates the effect of her white identity on our relationship. She is very cognizant of her whiteness and often names it as an active force while sharing her thoughts and perspectives when we hang out. This laid the infrastructure of trust between us over time to allow for greater safety for me to express my sadness, grief, and general rage at white folks to L without fear of reprimand, gaslighting, or fragility. With my friend Lisa, I remembered our shared love of books and asked her to sponsor any books and literature that would help me cope with racism in the short and long term. She showed up and made it happen without question. This led to an important revelation. Something I needed from my white friends was regular, lifelong, material support to help me cope with the impacts of the anti-Black racism that they benefit from. Now, three months later, my now discerned as reasonable white women friends have become my sugar allies, and I am able to reach out and ask for things to help me cope with this trash pandemic and ongoing racism to preserve my mental, emotional, and physical health such as weighted blankets, back massagers, and hella healing justice books. One of my core love languages is acts of service, and any form of casual solidarity I am able to receive truly touches me deeply. So there you have it. My higher self wins again. I ended up strengthening bridges with my white women friends rather than burning them.
for now. Welcome, Brittany. I really enjoyed your piece. First of all, because there's just such like joy and like you such have a, such a dynamic voice in the way you tell your stories and you suck me in and make me laugh. And I just love stories that like give me a good belly laugh, but also like tell me something a little bit profound too about the person's life. So I'm really glad to have you here and to ask you a little bit more questions about your story. So first of all, we'd love to know since you last created this piece, how has your friendships with these women changed? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking me that question. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in the months since, um, definitely like, um, just doing a lot of general reflection on how like the world kind of stopped caring about like black people after the summer, um, and how quiet it's been. And so I think, when I think about my friendships now, like I think of them as like, who's really gonna be here for me? Like, as I'm enduring white supremacist delusion. Um, and so, you know, with all my friendships and I have a lot of um, cross-cultural friendships, um, you know, I, I think I'm in a place where I want to be loved and seen and understood by folks who are also doing their inner work um, to take care of themselves, to um, pursue community care, to um, be able to be reciprocal in our love for one another, you know? And so I think, yeah, ever since the summer, like I've been um, really heartened by the folks who have been able to kind of show up in this like dynamic way that I'm asking um folks my friends my loved ones to to love me in that's not usually um yeah that we haven't been socialized to really um see friendships as a vehicle for that kind of radical intimacy you know um I want to grow as a part of my relationship with you and I also you know would like you to grow as you are in relationship with me for example there are friends who because of their um, work, we haven't been able to really connect on a regular basis anymore. But, you know, the times we do connect, you know, I'm reminded that, you know, they love me and I love them. And, you know, we're still able to, you know, create a new way of being accountable to one another and, and, and stay connected to one another that's um, really endearing. Um, and then other friends have just we're a country that doesn't know how to take care of its people um, who have endured a lot of death in their personal circles. So there's also been like, you know, learning how to be with other people, um, to be with my loved ones, to be with my friends as they're, um, yeah, just enduring so much heartache and, um, and grief. Yeah, I think my friendships are becoming more I feel like complex, but in a good way. I love so much of what you said, Brittany, so much of that um, just really spoke really deeply to me. I was like, kind of like holding my chest a little bit, just thinking about the last year and particularly friendships that have come and gone, um, but haven't survived uh, a tumultuous year of the pandemic of the continuation of racial injustice and, you know, the genocide against 
uh, black people and black bodies and as a you know a black woman just all of this compounds and I'm someone who the intimacy and in my friendships has been really important to me because I have been living away from my family in far different states and countries you know since I left um, home at 18 for college and I'm feeling the isolation of being so far from them like even more now and really leaning into the intimacy I have developed with some of my friends and Earlier, uh, when things were going on with, um, you know, and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were murdered, I reached out to some people I knew who I, you know, thought were really close to me and, and was really vulnerable with them about how I didn't think that they were really showing up in meaningful ways. And some of them just got really upset, Mm -hmm. told me I didn't know what they were doing and like, how dare I send this email Mm -hmm. to them. And I just didn't respond because there's so much that goes into waking up in a dark skinned body of a black woman every day and like just claiming space and taking up space and living that life authentically that I, I don't have enough room for other people's egos that are living far easier lives to be able to Mm -hmm. engage in that. But there is, there is room for this growth in these conversations as you're talking about. Um, I have one friend who we do our Bible study every week together and we live very different lives have very different experiences, but in coming together, we've been reading some of the books like Esther and Ruth and reclaiming some of these narratives from uh, women in the Bible and just like coming together like that with our vulnerabilities and, you know, showing up for each other, like the ability to continue to show up for each other um, and listen, like that's what I'm looking for in my friendships that have endured. And I think often about that Audre Lorde poem, like if you come softly and about someone just sitting next to you um, and being able to sit quietly as you are tearful and mourning and just know that the presence is enough because there's so much that people aren't going to be Mm -hmm. able to solve for me, but they can provide um, the space for me to be vulnerable. They can tangibly provide resources. Like so many friends have provided resources. You know, lastly, I want to say on, on this topic is I had to move in August because I was dealing with a very anti-Black landlord and the way that my community showed up for me so I could find a new place like and move in two weeks um, was phenomenal. You know, just the money that people like were able to like raise and help me find a place. And like, that was just one of those moments in the pandemic. And I'm like, yeah, I might be very isolated from my family, but I have such intimacy and like chosen family too that I, I have here um, who who don't forget me. Oh, that warms my heart. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I really, I think during this time, you know, we really, there's been, it's been a really demoralizing time, but there's also been really amazing moments in which I have seen just beautiful relationships grow and um, strengthen. So I really appreciated both of you sharing ways in which, you know, your communities have shown up for you and how these relationships have changed over time. And especially, Brittany, I really love what you said about um, how this is like the deepest that you've gotten into some of these friendships that you have before. And I think sometimes it takes that collective grief and that mourning to really kind of see, you know, who's going to be there when, um, who's going to be there for you at the darkest times. And I, I definitely have seen a lot of my friendships. Some of my friendships have really strengthened and grown and deepened, while others I've kind of seen as probably more surface level than I originally thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But something that's surprising to me as well is that I've actually made new friendships during this time, um, which I didn't really anticipate doing since, you know, we've been isolated. We're not supposed to see people. Um, but kind of in like my community work, um, I've connected with folks through online like channels and have managed to build, you know, a friendship <laughs> out of that. Yeah, it's just something that's really surprising. So I'd love to hear from the both of you, have you all made any new friendships during this time? And, you know, what kind of qualities do you look for in a new friend? Yeah, I feel like for me, you know, especially after the the uprisings and, and not even really this whole, like, past four years um, under um, Cheeto Satan's regime, like, I definitely have had to learn how to um, read people by their actions and not their words. Um, and I've learned that like the most um, life-giving relationships are those that is are those that like when I'm with folks, like I can, yeah, I can be myself and, and hold people um, accountable in love you know, and, and to have a sense of reciprocity um, with effort. And so I do think that like this year, um, I did make one, one new friend, one new friend, um, and they are really cool. And we were both, um, we met at a, at a entrepreneurship networking event. And it was, you know, they were really cool. And, you know, we were complaining about, you know, the mainstream capitalist patriarchy and all the mess. Great conversation and, starter. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you know that it's yeah. meant to be. That's, that's what it's meant, you know to it's meant to be. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it's great. Um, and so, you know, we, uh, you know, I have a Calendly now because I'm like, all right, the I have to make it as easy as possible for me to suss people out around whether or not we're going to be able to have a relationship. Um, and so I'm like, all right, I've sent them the Calendly link. If they ignore it or they're not able to like, you know, take the time to fill it out, to find a time. So we don't do the whole, you know, Hey, let's hang out. Oh yeah, we should. And then like both people ghost because no one wants to take the administrative leave. Uh, yeah. but, but sometimes Brittany, I need to do that because I need to know that we're thinking about each other, but I know I need to be in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's real. I mean, I think there's context for everything, you mm -hmm. know, but I think definitely when trying to, you know, check if people are in a season, of wanting to, you know, go deep, you know, then usually that's one of my first, like, um, my first uh, filters um, where I'm like, all right, when you pick a date, like, it's gonna happen because it's based on my consistently changing availability. Um, and so this person, um, they did, and we had a really great phone call and time, and, you know, we had a really great back and forth, and, you know, they did have life happen to them. And so we haven't been in contact, but I know it's not because like they don't like me or they don't care because in the times that we did engage, I was able to be like my authentic, you know, black woman self where I was like, yeah, like you're a non-black person of color, but I'm also um, a cisgender person and you're a trans person of color, you know? And so 
we um yeah I think we were very like frank around how we were navigating our relative privileges with one another and you know being able to um, just talk about our dreams and goals and figuring out how we were going to support each other with our varying capacities and I just love relationships that are about meeting yeah new friendships that allow me to be my full big authentic self which you know I'm not gonna lie like even with my relationships with my you know white woman friends like I'm doing a lot of undoing work in the, in a lot of ways because my entryway to like building relationship with them was through um, work and performance of like um, casual white supremacy culture. And so now I'm like, oh, you remember that thing? I, I smiled and didn't say anything about here's how I actually feel about it now that we're not in the same workspace anymore. Um, and I think now that I'm pursuing new friendships, I'm practicing like, starting off with my authentic self, you know, and, and really letting people choose, you know, like whether or not they're ready to engage me at my, my full vibration. So I appreciate my, my new friend, Chris, a lot. Um, and I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> your new that. friend, the relationship that you've had with your new friend, Chris, even though it's been a short time, sounds a lot deeper and more intimate than some of my long-term friendships too, now that I think about it. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly, you know, you can get really connected um, to people, even if it's like a, a short encounter. I think one of my, well, I know one of my really good friends right now is my friend Jacqueline, who, um, well, she's back in Vancouver and I had known her for a short period of time when her and her husband lived in San Francisco and I met her through my old roommate and you know we just kind of really hit it off and like now we talk every day you know always talking about how Matt James would be a far better black man on The Bachelor and um, you know yeah that's a whole nother that's a whole nother podcast um and so (laughs) um you know just like having that person who you know I know uh I can like laugh with but also is going to like show up for me and you know it's the length of our friendship right now has actually probably been virtual more than in person, uh, which is just incredible to see how you can continue that intimacy and that bonding um, with someone even after they're not physically around anymore. And one new friendship that I have is with my current roommate, Yasmin, who just, you know, came into my life at a time when I was leaving that anti-Black situation with my landlord. And it's just been so great to have like someone who like, this is like a haven of like Black womanhood here with all of her art and just have someone to watch TV with, you know, try new foods with, you know, we're like, oh, we're tired of cooking. Let's order food and just like how like quickly, um, you know, actually that space, you know, sometimes uh, being far away has created a a lot of connections with me, but this is an example of being in the same space, uh, creating that intimacy of friendship and just like having someone around to go through what we're going through right now in the pandemic. But, you know, just a lot like you, Brittany, just those friendships, whether it's been years or it's been a couple months, really boil down to um, are you creating space for me to be my, you know, finest, authentic, vulnerable version for myself? Uh, Can I create healthy boundaries with you if I need to? Um, And can we do the range of joy and sadness on any given day? 
just a, a side funny story, um, but I actually made a new friend. And then I introduced this new friend to one of my like longtime good friends. And now they're dating. Ah! Oh my God, those <laughs> are the best stories, man. Like if it, if it turns into anything more permanent, you can be like, I'm the one. Oh I'm yeah. Oh, oh. Totally. I, I take full responsibility for all the good things that come out of this. <laughs> yeah. I'm not impressed when Bina shares these stories because she has yet to successfully set me up. So I'm just, I'm just waiting. <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I've been trying. I'm on the lookout. I even, so a friend of mine has started. Wow, like, you've been trying. It sounds like it's so hard for you to no, do for No, no, there's not that many. Let me be honest with you. There are not a lot of great people out there who are worthy of you. So No, it's true. I agree with Vina. Yeah, like, I have a mad, <laughs> yeah. I have a yeah. mad vetting process. And so far, none of them have, have made it. Um, yes, but, I appreciate you both. I appreciate but you both. I, so a friend of mine is actually starting this like matchmaking service. He's it's still Ooh. like very, <laughs> it's still very much like type forms. Um, but I actually filled out a profile for Odelia. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see what I wrote about you? I have not seen it yet. It's on my to do yeah, list. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm working. You know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's anyways. I, hang in there. Wow. The time, time will come. <laughs> well, I mean, no. with the pandemic, all I have is time to hang in here. So here I am. In the yeah. meantime, intimate friendships. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to slide into your DMs, Vina, because um, I'm going to need uh, probably some help with the community to find someone worthy because the apps are not it. The apps are not it. Uh I did want to ask also just something that could possibly help our listeners is you're so great as you were telling your story about identifying your needs and asking people to meet those needs. Like what advice would you give our listeners about how do you identify the needs that you have and how do you ask people to meet those needs when you meet them too? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, hmm. I mean, I think it, one of the things I've struggled with um, growing up is like being able to um, ask for what I need, you know? And I think like with all the the healing work that I've done in my life, one of the things that um, I've noticed was that like I was a pretty hyper independent person. And so, you know, I would do everything I could to handle all of my um, all of my problems and things on my own. Um, but I think like, you know, the universe definitely called me in on that, on how unsustainable it is and how like by not letting people help me, I'm not actually letting myself have the opportunity to be loved and supported in the ways that I was actually yearning for. Right. And so me asking for help and being loud and unapologetic about it, right. Is really asking people to move well one I think it's validating to myself that I am deserving of love and support you know and then two I think it also allows me to suss out like you know meaningful relationships right and that like and especially having been socialized as a cis woman like you know I'm still working on being a recovering codependent and people pleaser and like I have done so much work for other people who don't have the capacity to reciprocate and love me, you know, and 
um, and support me in the ways that like I have um, been able to support them. And so I think, yeah, I do feel like most authentically loved when, and, and my love language is acts of service um, and words of affirmation, but definitely acts of service is the core one, you know, when, when folks are able to give me a, like an authentic yes and an authentic no, like when um, I ask them for, for support, you know, and I also think knowing what I need and sharing what I need is also an, um, an important process for, you know, radical introspection, you know, because you, then you get into the realm of like boundary work and then energy and then, you know, really trying to discern like who's really about, you know, supporting my life, you know, and then I think, I think in allowing people and my friends and my loved ones to um, support me in all of these like micro intimate ways from like, getting me groceries at the beginning of the pandemic to, you know, helping me do my hair because I can't do it <laughs> by myself anymore. Um, you know, it, it, it fills up my own reservoir of love and, and, and it makes it so that when they need help or they need support, like, I don't feel like, you know, the dark resentment that I often felt like with my old relationships where because I had given them 10,000% and, you know, um, and, and they were asking for more, like, I, I don't feel angry or mad that like, you know, I spent giving them more time of my energy because it's like, oh, well, they've shown up for me. And so I feel loved by them. This is not, while maybe what they're going through is difficult, um, and time consuming, I'm able to um, love on them on a platform of reciprocity and trust. So I don't know that you can ever really be in um, authentic friendship or relationship if, if one is not able to show their, yeah, their inherent like worthiness in being a person with needs to be stewarded and and um and taken care of and particularly around having multiracial friendships and with white people in general like to not have a reparations framework to not have a racial equity framework in a friendship like i is it really friendship or is it just a a, a performance to to absolve you from dealing with your participation in anti-blackness and racism etc etc yeah <laughs> yeah that's thank you so much Brittany that I'm sure all of our listeners found that incredibly helpful and I'm just going to leave us on that note that very powerful note about thinking about um being humans with needs in our friendships and the equity framework of friendship and both of us being able to come to the table with those needs and know that we're going to do our best to meet them. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here, Brittany. You've shed so many amazing just knowledge on, on us and our listeners. And I definitely have a lot to think about in terms of my friendships. Um, so appreciate your, your time and your energy being here with us today. Of course. Thank you for, you know, being excellent woman of color and just yeah providing the space for you know wisdom to be shared and you know as we 
you know, hit this particular point in recording time, I'm reminded that I'm a storyteller and there's no way for me to um, not share the, the dearth of um, wisdom and life experience that has accumulated um, with the world. So thank you both so much. So our next piece is by Ava Abbey. Ava is a slightly nerdy writer, reader, artist, and indoor plant owner. She spends most of her time working on attaining her nursing degree and Googling weird diseases. Me too, Ava. She spends the other half with her extra family or with her head in the clouds, thinking about a new book plot, restorative justice, environmental justice, race relations, sociology, and psychology are her passion. It only took one glance. When my dad saw my moisturized face, he brashly pronounced, white people do not like it when your face is oily. This was not the first time. This was not an isolated event. Wiping my face off, I felt a familiar tension between what my own body needed and the external pressures imposed upon me to be good enough for white people. My opinions about hair and race were communicated by my parents through a coded combination of direct and indirect statements about my appearance and behaviors. These ideologies seeped into my mind like sticky brown maple syrup on a warm waffle. My childlike innocence protected me from the weight of this belief system, like a shroud. The message was that I could redirect the negative stereotypes about the typical black person by editing my outward appearance and behavior. The on-ramp to my American dream converged with my ability to erase my blackness. Automatically, this dream became both achievable and irrepressibly motivating. These corrosive mindsets and narratives embittered my positive view of black people, strengthened my view of white people, yet ultimately degraded my sense of self. My experience of race is also evident in my relationship with my hair. My ire for my afro rooted itself in its tendency to seemingly shrink at the very sight of water, its inability to conform to uniformity in its curl pattern, yet its stern refusal to be bored straight. Black hair care is labor intensive. Each black person's hair is unique in its curl pattern, meaning that there is no across-the-way board way our hair should be cared for. One must experiment to discover what keeps their hair the most healthy. It's not just about shampoo or conditioner. It also requires a generous amount of moisture, oil, and attention to prevent it from becoming as dry as straw. Indifference. Earlier in my childhood, I felt impervious and indifferent regarding my relationship with my hair because I did not consider it my concern nor my responsibility. My bushy hair was my mother's business. Overwhelmed with the rigors of a big family and four girls' dense black hair to tend to, my mother moved from natural hairstyles like braids and twists to solely pepper in perms and texturizers. Rebellion. I came to love the ritual involved with my hair, mainly because of my kinesthetic nature. I was enamored by the feeling of plunging my hand into oil and feeling my moisturized hair. 
However, one day, I started to notice empty patches and painfully large stress bumps in the back of my hair. I was so confused and scared at the loss I was experiencing. My contentment with the status quo dissipated. I was only 11, but I was determined to stop the treatments. My mother warned me of the time-consuming nature of natural hair and that my hair would be solely my responsibility. But I was determined. Having straight hair was ruining me, not winning me success or admiration as I had thought. Acceptance. Like the patches on my hair, I've come to recognize the brokenness in my relationship with my heritage as an African-American. I've had to reckon with my disassociation and meet a real part of myself. Now, I wanted to know more about who I was and who my ancestors were. Similarly, I've had to learn to enjoy the repetitive practice of tending to my hair's needs. It's not perfect. Believe me. Just this week, I found myself cursing my hair in the mirror for not matching the YouTube ideal. Empowerment. When the racial uprising started, I found an extreme rage within me that I didn't know existed. The world was way more hostile than I thought, shattering my naivety. I felt that my life was worthless. A minnow compared to the great shark that was the world and racism. Even now, I struggle with the idea of going back to white church and interacting with my white spaces and friends. This summer, I participated in a month-long justice and ecological program. I found a connection through community to the younger Abigail and the Abigail of today. I have more shalom or peace within myself that I never knew I could have. You see, there are some friendships that are automatic. A shocking, sudden, and spontaneous connection of two related souls. Then, there are some like trying to spark a fire with kindling. It takes a couple tries. Such is my relationship with both my hair and my race. Hi, Ava. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed your piece and just the journey that you took us on through it. So I'm curious, since you recorded this piece, how has your relationship with your hair changed or grown? I think now I have more scheduled time that I do my hair. Um, so I think it's different for me because now I have specific times that I do it. And so it makes it easier and it uh, lessens kind of the stress. And I think now, like, I just have more confidence in my hair. I think I used to feel like everybody was looking at me and I would, like, be so scared about their judgment and just overthinking. And I think now I just care less about what people think. And I think, too, like, I used to think straight hair was just better. I think it made me look more beautiful. And it took me 18 years just to, like, get to the point, finally, where I was, like, I actually want to allow my hair to reach its curliest potential. And I think too, like we live in such a good time because there's so many forums and so many people and so many teachers who, and products too, that like, there's no, there's such a wealth of information out there um, for you to learn how to do hair. 
And I think also I just have more willingness to experiment with my hair. And then also I just feel like I, I no longer have to compromise my appearance um, to make friends or romantic relationships. Like I, I just don't feel the desire anymore to hide. And I don't want in the future for my kids to have to hide. And so, yeah, I'm just done feeling like I have to erase myself to make people feel more comfortable. Uh, one of my greatest passions is for story or narrative. Um, and it's basically like the psychology method that focuses on storytelling to give meaning to the past or present. And for me, my hair has been like a place that I felt like a lot of bondage in and a lot of oppression and a place where literally I was pulling back or hiding, minimizing my blackness. And so I feel like right now, like I've changed in the fact that I feel like I'm being invited into freedom from captivity. And my hair is that voice or that form of protest. And so by letting my hair down, by choosing to let it be curly, by letting it defy gravity, I feel like I'm being more true to my story and to the story of my ancestors. So I really love that. Um, and it's, you know, you talk about 18 years and I'm reflecting on the fact that it took me until when I was in grad school to go on that journey of going back to my roots, as I call it, you know, it's like not even like transitioning a natural hair, like it just is the hair that grows out yeah. of my head. And that was in my mid 20s. So I'm just hearing you say like, you know, 18 years, I'm like, Oh, good for her, you know, getting to that early. And I always referred to it as you know, kind of the lie of the lie and the re, um, the relaxer that we put in our hair and how right. our hair is always. And I felt like my hair was this like last frontier of stripping away this like need for people to see me in a particular way. And and our yeah. hair, our hair knows this. It's always rebelling against being straight. Right. It's always right. trying to curl back on itself. And that power in that curl is just the beauty of just wearing my hair out as wild. Yeah. Um, as it is and you know I've been coming back to this story a lot because during the pandemic and the stress I've actually been losing my hair and yeah. thinking about um, you know how much even my natural hair people would say oh you know like great curls and stuff and I hate that when people are like great curl pattern like every curl right. pattern is great <laughs> uh, but coming back to like who am I now you know going from straight hair to my my own curls to now losing hair and being in that next stage of the journey of like what does my hair saying about me in this moment yes because i think sometimes we don't think that inanimate things have a voice but they do it's just that we're ignoring it we're just going about our busy lives and so i think it's great um, when you talk about being able to slow down even even forced by the pandemic you slowing down to realize like wow, this, I'm, I'm losing hair. What is this connected to? And so I feel like story is so much more important than we think. And it affects like every single area of our life. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you're talking about storytelling um, about hair, I think back and you were talking about how, you know, you, you thought that straight was beautiful. I definitely yeah. think back to um, that episode on sister, sister mm -hmm. and where it's, um, I think it was Tamara. Yeah, I think it was Tamara that got a makeover and she got straight hair and then Tia yeah. curly hair. And everyone thought, you know, Tamara was so beautiful and she became one of the popular girls. Right. And then it reminded me again of the Princess Diaries where um, the character Mia played by Anne Hathaway, you know, before she was um, 
her like appearance was like curly hair and then she got straight hair and suddenly she was considered so beautiful. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The transformation. Yeah. Transformation, transformation is always involves the straight hair. And I always feel like yeah. those movies are a direct opposition to me because it's like, oh, the transformation to be beautiful, straight right. hair get rid of the glasses. And I'm like, well, I have glasses. I have glasses and curly hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so- I, think, I, I think that's part of the problem is that there's so, it's everywhere. You know, it'd be one thing if it was in one thing and it's like, oh, well, just don't read books. You know, but it's everywhere. These pictures of what we should be, what we should look like. And I think part of the main problem is that it's so people won't say, oh, we like straighter hair better. That's the problem is that it's so silent that you can almost like miss it. Yeah. And actually you you both mentioned that, you know, you came into this journey, um, you said in 18 and then mid twenties, I actually went. um, So for me, I've always straightened my hair um, to the point where it would be like fried and falling off and just full Mm -hmm. of split ends. Um, As like a Asian American, it's like, the idea was, you know, Asian girls had nice, soft, silky, uh, straight black hair. And that was, I guess I never, I never had that. And so naturally yeah. um, so I was straight in it. And actually it was during the pandemic where I, I I'm embarrassed to admit, but I took a hair course because I've always struggled with my hair and, yeah. um, I learned to stop straightening it, stop blow drying it. And yeah, it took me 30 years, uh, to finally just embrace my hair as it is. And I've actually, I do have like subtle curls that I never thought I did or never maybe embraced it. I always thought my hair was like wavy, um, but like not in the nice way, but it was because I was applying all this like heat to it and just like tugging at it and do all these terrible things to it. But since I've just like um, learned how to take care of it, I'm starting to see these like little curls come in and Mm. I recently saw Raya and the Last Dragon, which is um, Disney's latest um, animated film. And yeah. it features a Southeast Asian warrior princess voiced by a Vietnamese American. And um, as she was walking into the shipwreck, I noticed that her hair looked exactly like mine. Like we had kind of like a similar like fluff to it. And oh. there was like these waves. And I was like, that looks like my hair. <laughs> and you know, I, I know representation is important. I just never knew how powerful it was for me personally. And just yeah. seeing her hair, I was like, oh my gosh, I finally see my hair reflected in like a Disney animated film. So and I yes. love that. Cause like, you know, Disney and all these people are still uh, going towards, you know, the light skin, the straight right. hair, like yeah. look all the time. Or they're like, oh, if she has curly hair, it needs to be like this particular type of curly hair. Like the, the kind of naps and kinks and pillowy soft cotton hair is still seen as unprofessional in some places to think yes. it was just even a few years ago in California that we passed a law about like not being able to discriminate against black women about the very thing that grows out of our head. Yes. Yes, that is so true. That is so true. Yeah. And even just feeling the conflict of even Black people that we look up to. I remember watching like a film and and this contrast of like Black people being on the forefront and and the most important in this film, but then also having the contract contrast of this musician having very straight hair. And so it's just something that like you just feel inside of you. It's kind of again, just hard. It's hard to express. And so like 
you really have to learn how to be aware to realize really that you're feeling this. It's almost like being torn between two different ideas or things. And it's, yeah, it's, it can be very complex. Yeah. And speaking of just things being complex, being aware, I, um, I remember that you mentioned in your piece that the racial uprising last summer really affected your worldview. And so would love yeah. to hear, you know, since last summer, how have you as a person changed, grown, what kind of learnings have you been undergoing? Yeah, I think uh, really the first thing that I felt was just shock, you know, like this awful, awful, awful shock of realizing that my view of the world was not so. Like, I, I think I would watch these films about slavery and I would console myself after by being like, thank God it isn't like this now. And so as a person, I, it was just like this weight of grief where at first I was just like, no, I wasn't really feeling anything. All my white friends were texting me. Hey, I'm so sorry. We love you, blah, blah, blah. But I think it took, a, I, I'm happy um, that we're just now doing this podcast because it's taken me so long just to process um, really how I was feeling. So I think really the first thing was just grief. And I think it's something that U.S. Americans really struggle with. Like we only really allow people a very short time to, to grieve what's what's going on in them. But I think as I've gotten older, I'm just trying to learn how to flow kind of with the grief, kind of with the waves that grief is. And um, so that that for, for me, that means just allowing myself to have those bad days and have those good days and to revel and revel really in each. And then just like family, like, man, like just being in quarantine with my family, like we've been together um, since March 16th last year um, has, has meant a lot because you have to have conversations with people within your, your own group. It's very, it's very exhausting to have groups, to have conversations with people who don't understand the minority experience all the time. And so I think it was just very vital that I was around my family and having those conversations. And then I think in a great and awful way, I've become way more aware of my ancestors. Like, I feel like they're looking over my shoulder, like they're cheering me on, they're laughing at me, they're admonishing me. And so I feel like there's this duality of feeling both pressure and like joy to make my, to make something of myself or to like please them. And then regarding like friends and different relationships, I feel like I've had to reprioritize um, who I really give my time to and not in like a cancel culture way, like, oh, they're canceled, you know, but in a, in a way that really makes you process like what type of friend am I, what values and friendships are important to me. And I think I even started to realize that like, I think a lot of people who don't understand the minority experience feel this pressure to understand. And to me, like, it doesn't matter that you don't understand. What matters to me is that you want to understand and that you have empathy and non-judgment. Because I think a lot of us come to this conversation loaded with our ideas and the way we think things should be. And so it was just, it was very hard. And then uh, the last thing that was really important to me um, was just having friends who will say, that sucks. And just ended on that. I find that a lot of people feel like they have to follow that sucks by some hopeful statement about, well, the past will be better or, you know, but, but having friends who just say, wow, that really, really stinks. 
And then I think another thing that kind of changed within me is I really struggled. Like, I think I struggled with trust issues in the past, but specifically it started coming up a lot um, where I was just very traumatized by statements that people had said, people who I thought were my friends said things like George Floyd was an addict. He deserved what he got. Um, And then we had another friend who said, watch out, white people, black people (laughs) will try to poison you. Oh, dear. (laughs) What? That's a lot. Um, I I know you talked about not canceling people, but those people, I mean. (laughs) Those people, some people should be canceled. Some people definitely should be canceled. Yes. Just learning how to use your time well, because some people aren't worth your time. And I remember... um, kind of in justice conversations, I was talking to this lady, brilliant lady, and she was talking about how you have to spend your time wisely. And so with some of the older generation and just people my age too, like they're so set in their ways, there's no use arguing with them. And so I think learning that like, sometimes your time, your time is too valuable to spend time convincing people who don't want to be convinced. And I think sometimes you can tell the difference between people who actually want to have a conversation versus people who just want to prove their point. And so that's, I think a lot of times people ask questions because they want to trap you or they just want to spend that time gaslighting. And you have to know the difference between is someone genuinely coming to have a conversation. And then there's like probably three choices. One, I'm fine having this conversation right now with this person. Um, I yeah. understand where they're coming from. Two, I don't even have energy for this conversation because like, you know, especially as black people, like we have to reserve our energy to take care of ourselves. And yes. so just not having yeah. the conversation is an option. And the third option is like knowing that someone does not have any good intentions in asking this question and they're not right. open to a dialogue. They want to trap you. They want to gaslight you and to, you know, really create um, no mechanisms in which those kind of questions can reach you. Like those people should ask each other questions. Yes. <laughs> Y'all figure out what you're doing and come back to me because, yeah. And and I think I felt a lot of shame about that because it's like, you know, like, of course, I, I'm happy that people are asking questions. You should be asking questions. But at the same time, like you're saying, like as black people, we are so exhausted of trying to explain these things to people. And then and then you'll have like tears, which are not bad. I think tears are very healthy and very apt for what happened and what is continuing to happen. But I think you just need to save time. And, and so, yeah, that realization was really big for me. And then just also like realizing that like feeling frustrated, but also realizing that we are not there. I think a lot of times, even in my own perspective, I felt that we had adequately, or at least were close to reaching Martin Luther's uh, King Jr.'s dream, but realizing that there's so much work to be done and it's just a choice of whether we choose to abide with that work. And then like, on the other hand, like there were several positive things that happened within myself. Um, I'm working really hard right now to cultivate hope um, to realize, uh, to keep on having faith in humanity. I think that sounds very drastic, but I've had to do a lot of work of just realizing that like, I cannot put all of my hope in people. And if I do, then I will be disappointed literally all of the time. And so I think for, for other people, it's just deciding what you want to have faith in because you just cannot rely everything on people. Of course you get your needs met. You have needs for a reason, 
but yeah, just realizing that. And then just, there's so many things that have kept my soul alive through quarantine, through the continuing and evolving racial situation, um, like art, writing. I think there's something so powerful to be said about creating something that is birth of your pain. And I think by allowing myself to not be perfect, allowing myself to fail, I think it's been so invigorating for me. Um, yeah. And then um, the last thing is just like kindness. Like um, not all of my experiences with my friends were bad. Um, I remember one of my friends uh, had texted me after George Floyd happened and has and said, basically, I see what's happening in the world and I'm sorry. And that really touched me. It was so simple. It almost seems inadequate, but it was so, it was exactly what I needed. And so for me, just learning like what it looks like to exemplify empathy to people and having the desire to make goodness and vulnerability attractive. Oh, yes. Vulnerability attractive. And, you know, so many great nuggets in what you just said, but especially a part about like making like art for yourself and to speak yeah. to others during these moments, because I think it's Toni Morrison who says like, this is when the creatives, this is when the artists step up. Like, you know, when the yeah. world is falling apart, like we do art, we, we create, we make meaning yes. of things. Like that's when we go to work. And I, I really feel that as someone, you know, who is a creative, it's like, this is a moment which I go to work to help people have different ways. It isn't just scrolling on social media or like reading right. the news all the time to yeah. engage with their feelings and, and sit with it. And uh, particularly around hope, uh, Pastor Ben McBride, who works out here in the Bay. Um, yeah. Before we, yeah. Before we went on a march, he, you know, talked about like our, you know, people in the desert, you know, like crossing borders now or. Uh, many of our ancestors who were just like plotting behind their slave sheds, um, just really deeply believing, even though they don't know where they're going, is this idea of like, I believe that we will win. And I often go yes. back to that, to that thought because it's like, yeah, like you, you have to believe that like at the end of the day, like you, you are going to win. There's going to be something there at the end of this struggle, even if we're just lighting the candle that someone else is yeah. going to like see something new about. Um, and that keeps me going and knowing like, you know, I, I see people sometimes I'm like, oh, how are you, how can you give up, you know, hope? I was like, cause like the people who have been the most um, really just like violently assaulted in this country yes. are some of the people who have the greatest hope um, and right. are always going back to that, you know? So if we can find hope, you know, I do struggle to see how I was like, other people, you know, like join us because we haven't given up. And that's why, you know, black people are still here in this country. And, yeah. um, and just thinking about our ancestors, you know, you mentioned earlier about wanting to just um, be doing the things that they would want you to do. And I saw the other day, this message that our ancestors also dreamt of rest. And I've been thinking a lot yes. about that because, you know, people are always like, you know, our ancestors live so you can hustle, do this and that. And I was like, Honestly, yeah, you know, our ancestors who were enslaved individuals wanted to rest, not work. They wanted to wake up one day and not have to go to the field. And so like resting and connecting that to something they would want from uh, for us is really powerful, too. That is such a good point. And I think, too, that my mom always would say, assume the best. And I think with these issues, in order to stay sane, in order to have a positive attitude, for me, what's so important is coming up with exceptions. So like, 
I, I was very tempted to make these mental agreements of all white people are out to kill me or all white people hate me. And before making those uh, agreements, like acknowledge the fact that there are people who <laughs> would like that, but also having those exceptions in my mind helps me have that positive attitude. And then like what you're saying with rest is so, so good. Cause I think whenever you're doing the work of trying to restore justice, it's very, very, very exhausting. But I think whenever you look in perspective of where we've come from and where we are, it's so, so encouraging because things have changed since Martin Luther King Jr. Things have changed since Rosa Parks. Things have changed since then. And we have to keep those in our minds. Otherwise, we'll just be depressed our whole life, to be honest. So, yeah. Well, as we wrap up today, uh, thank you, Ava. This has just been such a great conversation. Uh, you know, I want to bring it back to your piece and, you know, your hair and the relationship there. And would love to ask, like, what's the most life-changing hair tip you've ever learned? <laughs> okay, this is hard. Uh, I have four. Um, so I think probably the first one is, we kind of talked about this earlier, but just be willing to like experiment with different hair products, different brands. Um, I, I talked a lot about the uniqueness of your hair, but the good thing is your hair is not so unique that no product will, will work on it. Like there's something that will work on your hair. I remember one time I walked in Walmart when we could still go to Walmart. Um, and I picked up this hair product and was like, oh, this is probably for white people, but it was like $1. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to buy it. Um, and it's the only product that works to gel down my hair and it's great. Um, I think also just, again, I talked about this earlier, just having a schedule nailed down. It really prevents you from working too hard and gives you kind of that consistency. Also do fun things like um, you, if you don't feel comfortable dyeing your hair, find alternatives. I just used some hair wax and I dyed my hair purple and it was so much fun because um, I'd spent so many years being worried about, you know, like how will my hair respond to dye? And it's like, no, there's other things you can do. Um, and then also this is kind of funny, but if you reach the point with your hair where you just want to rip it out in frustration, just move on, just wait until tomorrow. Like I always get to that point where I'm like, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to go get my hair shaved tomorrow. So <laughs> definitely take a break. So yeah. And thank y'all so much. This was so much fun. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for all those tips. I'm going to try the hair wax. That sounds really fun. <gasps> yes. Yes. It's super fun. It's on Amazon and Walmart, I think. So yeah. Okay. I have I a complicated that. relationship with Amazon and Walmart right now, but I will look out. <laughs> right. That's, fair. That's yeah. definitely fair. <laughs> I've been using this line from uh, Natural, um, and it's great because oh. you can actually get it to uh, come back to you, um, just like a reoccurring buy. Because, you know, we, you know, when they say like a dime size amount, I'm like, who wrote these instructions? I need like, <laughs> I need like 30 dimes to be enough uh, for my hair. Uh, but yeah, it's an avocado kiwi line. Um, I've just been using oh. the avocado line and it's been fantastic. Uh, they've got a deep conditioner. It's almost like an ice cream that you keep in the freezer and you take it out oh. for about two hours before you um, deep condition your hair. And it just all smells like really organic and amazing. And uh, that's been uh, pretty life changing for me, just, you know, in terms of just nourishing my hair back to health. That's so good. I'm gonna have to try check that out. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ava, for being here. Love this convo and just excited to keep in touch and see what you're up to next. Seems like you're on the move and, you know, just excited to see what kind of stories you bring into the world. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Those were some really great stories and discussion. I'm so grateful for Brittany and Ava and their pieces and just this time to sip on this tea and and talk about all the things bubbling up for us right now as women of color. Yes, always so many things bubbling up for women of color. And I think that's why, you know, when we set out to make this podcast, I was so excited about it, even though none of us really had any experience with podcasting and we knew it'd take a lot of time, but I am so grateful for this space and so grateful for the listeners that have come our way and are willing to sit through about an hour to an hour and a half of us um, talking. But um, as such, I think it's about time we end this episode. Uh, This has been a much longer one. So we want to thank you for sticking with us and excited to end the season with you all soon. So um, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to TN Transitions, brewing good stories down to the very last drop.